Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies on the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee. Today our guest is Dr. Matthew Felt from the University of Florida. His new book, Meanings of Antiquity, Myth Interpretation in Pre-Modern Japan, was published um, this summer through Harvard University Press. This is the first dedicated English language study on the um, ancient Japanese texts Kojiki and Nihonshoki, known also as the oldest myth in the Japanese literary tradition. In this book, Matthew discusses the evolution of these myths as well as their interpretation over time. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for the great uh, great introduction. Thank you. Um, can you first tell us about your work? Um, what do you research and teach about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, as you might expect, so I teach Japanese studies at UF at the University of Florida. Um, at UF teaching-wise, I teach stuff like classical Japanese and pre-modern Japanese literature, which you kind of would expect because it's in my uh, research area. But I also teach some broader courses on things like Japanese frontiers and Japanese horror and some more practical uh, study items uh, like how to get a job in Japan uh, or more recently uh, AI and, and LLM translation. Uh, we tried that for the first time last semester. Research-wise, my, my main focus is on Japanese myths and Japanese mythology. Uh, in terms of discipline, um, I especially in Japan, right, the disciplines are really narrow. So I usually uh, kind of describe myself as, as somebody who works on Jodai Bungaku, so 8th eight, century Japanese literature. Um, Topic-wise, uh, primarily focused on reception history. So uh, from pre-modern to modern, how has 8th century Japanese literature been read, reread? reinterpreted. Um, and the book the book that we're talking about today is primarily a literature, uh, methodologically speaking, it's a kind of literature approach, although there's some some really strong influence from pre-modern history and pre-modern religion. Awesome. I'm personally very interested in reception history myself, so I was very excited to see this book come out, especially since there has no um, dedicated English book on this subject. Now, um, your book focuses on texts that are very important to Japanese history, both history and literature. So can you first give us a brief introduction of these two works and how you uh, became interested in them? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you think that they're very important. Uh, I also think that they're very important. Um, so yeah, the, the main focus are these two books, uh, Kojiki, or An Account of Ancient Matters, uh, which is completed in 712 CE and Nihon Shoki, uh, or the Chronicles of Japan, completed in 720 CE. Uh, and usually when we say they're important, there's kind of, in my opinion, there's kind of two things driving this. Um, one is that, as you said, these are the oldest Japanese books, uh, kind of full stop. Um, and they are the books that have the Japanese mythical, they're kind of like myth histories, like they have these creation myths and talk about how the Japanese uh, archipelago was created and where the different kami, the different gods come from and, and their relationships with each other. And then it kind of segues into this history of the ancient Japanese court 
um, carrying on into the sixth or seventh century. Um, but then the other reason that these these texts are important is because they've been read and reread for generations, uh, especially the Nihon Shoki in pre-modern and early modern Japan, uh, and then the Kojiki in early modern and and modern Japan. Um, my my own interest in these books came from you probably a situation that's familiar to a lot of listeners, which is you're in your first kind of Japanese culture class as an undergraduate, and the first book that you read, or at least an early book that you read, is is the Kojiki or Nihon Shoki. You're reading these creation myths of uh, where Japan where Japan came from and and how it came to be. And I remember when I was an undergraduate, I was really really fascinated by the kind of human qualities of the Japanese deities. Uh, they fight with each other, they make love to each other, they kill each other, uh, they get jealous and angry. Um, and it seemed like there are also a lot of parallels to, to um, Greek mythology. Uh, and as an undergrad, I also was kind of personally interested in myths and mythology. Um, I took a, a course on Mediterranean myths and mythologies with Jay-Z Smith, uh, which for me was a kind of really important kind of undergraduate, undergraduate moment. Um, after I graduated, I, I went to Japan. After I finished undergraduate, I went to Japan and I was really blown away to see the degree to which kind of Kojiki, especially now, is still a kind of major constellation in Japanese contemporary culture. There's a lot of new adaptations. Um, sections of it are part of the school curriculum. You're, you're never gonna meet someone who's like read it cover to cover, but you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who didn't know the name and have at least a vague idea of what the contents were. That is such an interesting point um, for for such an important book for the as the origins, supposed origins of Japan. Um, very few people, very few Japanese people even have um, read it cover to cover. But for a reader who may not be familiar with this, uh, these books, um, one might wonder who who wrote these books and um, what's I guess what's the origin story of these origin stories? Uh, this is a great question, I think, because it sounds like a really simple question, but actually it's a really, really complex and difficult question. It's kind of like trying to answer who, who wrote the Bible. Um, so if I can kind of hedge a little bit in my response, I think it makes the most sense to kind of break it up into like degrees of certainty. So we can say with like a high degree of certainty that the Kojiki was written by Ono Yasumaro in 712. We can say with a high degree of certainty that the Nihon Shoki is compiled by uh, a fellow named Prince Tonetti and some others, uh, but led by Tonetti in 720. Uh, still a high degree of certainty that Tonetti wrote or compiled his main, one of his main objectives was to make his father look good. And the back context of this is that his father was Emperor Tenmu, uh, who seized power in 672 with force, like there was a there was a civil war. You know, he led a, a, a an army against his nephew. Uh, the nephew ends up killing himself, um, and so uh, one of Tonetti's kind of jobs in putting this history together was to make his father look like a legitimate sovereign. Um, we also know, kind of with high certainty, that Nihon Shoki was considered the official account between the two of them, uh, certainly from the Heian period, and then also because there's a Nihon Shoki gets a sequel very early on. Um, and so the fact that it has a sequel kind of suggests that the people at the time were, were thinking of that as the official version of events, and the Kojiki was kind of like a supplement. Uh, but when we go to kind of medium certainty, uh, we could say probably the Kojiki is written also in connection to this 
emperor who sees power by force, Tenmu. At least that's what the Kojiki says in its preface, but you can't believe everything you read. Uh, probably the Nihon Shoki also is connected to Tenmu at some point. Um, that's the what the Nihon Shoki has itself in its own historical annals. Tenmu at some point says that histories need to be compiled. Uh, maybe there's a connection between the two materials. Like it seems ridiculous that the Nihon Shoki compilers wouldn't have known about the Kojiki. Uh, and, and it's medium certainty they're based on some existing source material. I mean, it, it would be preposterous to say that that they just made it all up. I, there's too much material, right? I mean, it's just too much stuff. Um, but then we slip into this like not much uncertain, not much certainty, things that we don't really know, which is what is that source material? Because none of it is extant. Uh, were they kind of clan records? Was it stuff that was brought over from Korea? Was it stuff that was transmitted from the age of the gods? I'm not saying that, but there are people who historically have thought that, you know, that that was the case. Uh, is there a connection to other ancient books? Um, you know, there's a hot debate. I shouldn't say right now, but very recently between two uh, two two prominent scholars, John Bentley and Mark Tewin. Uh, it's uh, easily locatable uh, on, on your favorite search engine about the authenticity of certain ancient materials. Um, so the point being, there's still a lot of unresolved issues um, with regards to these materials. That actually sounds um, pretty interesting, despite being all um, complicated as well. But um, as for the origin stories, so for our listeners who may not be familiar with Japanese myth, can you give us a very quick um, summary of, um, I guess, how the myth described um, Japan came into being? Uh, yeah, uh, we'll do the kind of quick and dirty Japanese creation story. Um, maybe for the purposes of the podcast, I'll give the creation story from the Kojiki. And then uh, at the end, I'll kind of circle back and point out a couple of the differences with Nihon Shoki. Because uh, one thing I would want to stress is that the, the even though the books are kind of superficially similar, there, there are some kind of major differences in how Kojiki and Nihon Shoki describe the creation of the world. Um, starting with Kojiki, it, it really centers on two characters, Izanagi and Izanami. So this is a male, a male kami, a male deity, and a female deity. And according to the Kojiki, early on, they are ordered by the heavenly gods to uh, create the land. And the heavenly gods give them a spear. And Izanagi and Izanami go down to what's called the floating bridge of heaven. They're standing on this floating bridge of heaven, looking down, and they they don't they just see the ocean below. They dip the spear down, uh, and when they pull the spear back out, the the brine that kind of drips off the tip of the spear turns into an island. Uh, Izanagi and Izanami go down to the island, and uh, then they uh, do a kind of courtship ritual. They they um, circle around the island in different directions, uh, and Izanami, uh, the the female kami, sees Izanagi and she says, "You know, whoa, this is this is a really good looking guy." And then Izanagi, the the male kami, says, uh, "You know, this this is a really good looking lady." Uh, and then this podcast is PG thirteen, PG. Oh. Let's give a uh, censored version, perhaps. The censored version. Okay. Um, so, you know, uh, Izanagi says, there's a part of my body that has a little more to it. And Izanami says, what a coincidence. There's a part of my body that has a little little space. Uh, and some magic happens. And they give birth to a, uh, a leech, what's called a kind of leech child. But but um, it's it's uh, the leech doesn't really have a kind of prominent skeleton. 
and the suggestion is that the child can't stand. So something has gone wrong. Uh, they go back to heaven, ask the heavenly gods what happened. The heavenly gods do a divination, and they say, oh, we figured it out. I Izanami spoke first. The female Kami spoke first. It should have been the other way around. Izanagi should have been the one to say, oh, a beautiful woman, or whatever. Just go back and do it again. So they send the two back down. They repeat the whole process. This time, Izanagi goes first. Uh, and then Izanami starts giving birth to basically everything. Uh, the seas, the mountains, the trees. Um, not humans. She never actually gives birth to humans. And we never get a story in either of these books where human, human beings come from. Uh, but she gives birth to a series of uh, kami. Uh, ultimately, then she gives birth to a uh, fire kami named, named Kagutsuchi. And when she's giving birth to the fire kami, she dies. She gets burned and dies. Uh, Izanagi is furious. Uh, it's not clear if he's furious that she died. Well, he's upset that she died. And then he's also upset because they, they weren't actually done with this kind of creation process. He draws his sword and he kills the fire kami on the spot. Uh, the blood splatters everywhere, and the blood is creating new kami everywhere. It splatters, and it runs off his sword, and that creates more kami. Uh, and uh, then Izanagi goes to the land of the dead, goes to Yomi, and finds Izanami, and says, "You know, hey, what are you doing? We we weren't we weren't done yet. Is there any way you can come back so we can finish?" And and Izanami says, "No, but maybe. Let me go see. I'm going to go talk to the gods of Yomi. Maybe they'll maybe we can work something out. But while I'm while I'm doing that, don't look at me." Of course, Izanagi lights a torch. He looks at her, and she's, uh, you know, her corpse is is rotting at this point, and there, there's maggots and stuff. And and so uh, Izanami is furious at him for looking and says, "You've shamed me." Chases him out of Yomi. They get a divorce. Uh, it, it ends pretty badly. Uh, Izanagi now alone in what is what is Japan uh, says, "Well, I've been to a really filthy place. Uh, I need to kind of wash the impurity off of me." And he goes and does a kind of ritual ablution, a set of ritual baths. And a lot of other kami are born in this process. And the most important one of these is from one of his eyes, is the kami Amaterasu. So this is the sun goddess. She is the, the patron kami of the imperial clan. Uh, and she's, I mean, she's a baller. She's like the most powerful of all of, all of the kami. Uh, and uh, the, the story goes on from there. But the key thing for, for the, the creation story here is connecting Amaterasu than with the emperors that are going to be born down the line. Um, and then circling back to the Nihon Shoki, you know, the key thing to recognize, looking at that the Nihon Shoki version, there are no heavenly gods. So Izanagi and Izanami aren't told to do this. Uh, and Izanami also doesn't die. She doesn't give birth to the fire kami. The two of them manage to produce Amaterasu together in the conventional fashion, I guess. Um, and what this really suggests is that the Nihon Shoki version is is really the engine of it is a kind of yin yang cosmological feature where where male and female come together on their own. Uh, yin and yang kind of are naturally attracted to each other. There's no need for the heavenly gods to intervene and tell tell people what they need to do, uh, as opposed to a different cosmological vision happening in in Kojiki. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm going to break it off there. This, but the Izanagi Izanami is probably one of the most important or central stories at least and and this gives us where the japanese islands at least came from thank you that was a really um short and uh quick version of the origin story and i've always been fascinated how the tiny detail of um when a female deity spoke first she supposedly contaminated the whole process which um as um some of our listeners may know affected um the japanese uh, political situation today 
Um, maybe we Absolutely. can talk about that. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can talk a bit about that later. But in terms of these um, deity, how these kami, um, how have these two texts, um, Kojiki and Nihonshoki, interacted with Japan's religion uh, in the pre-modern and early modern times? Um, yeah, this is basically what, what the book is about, right? Um, the um, I think uh, the, the big factor for pre-modern, for pre-modern Japan really is Buddhism. This, if I had to put it in a word, the, the word is Buddhism. Um, Buddhism enters Japan and it changes changes everything. It changes the way the world looks. It changes the geography of the world. Uh, Max Mormon's book from a couple years ago, you know, um, details this. It changes how people in Japan know things about the world. There's an epistemological transformation. Uh, now Japan's kind of it's isolated. It's at the it's it's at the edge of the world rather than being in the center of the world. Uh, and and knowledge is created by uh, identifying parallels, uh, and this is based on a kind of Buddhist notion, everything has the same origin. Um, and so when we see parallels in nature, it's this natural process, and it kind of validates that what we're observing is, is in fact the truth. Um, maybe it would actually be easier, uh, it would make more sense, though, if I told a different version of the same story. Uh, so uh, if we put it in terms of, uh, it, it says in the Nihon Shoki that Amaterasu, was standing on the floating bridge of heaven, northwest of India. And she saw something in the water below her glowing. And so she dipped the uh, heavenly spear that she had and uh, found a seal. Uh, and it's the seal of Dainichi or, or Vairochana, the, the cosmic Buddha. Uh, and uh, this causes uh, a number of islands to emerge, an archipelago to emerge out in the ocean uh, in the shape of a, a, a Siddham letter. This is the alphabet that's used to write sutras in pre-modern Japan, uh, to write Buddhist texts. Uh, and uh, the, the archipelago looks kind of like the letter. Uh, and then the name of the archipelago, because it's connected to this guy, Dainichi, the Nichi in Dainichi's name is Sun. This is the origin country of Dainichi. So we get origin of the Sun i.e. Japan, the name for Japan. Uh, but when this happens, the, the king of the sixth desire realm, a guy named Mara, is really, really concerned. He sees this new land being created, and he's worried that Buddhism is going to spread there, uh, and people are going to be uh, released from the, the cycle of, of death and rebirth. And so he makes a deal with Amaterasu, where Amaterasu basically says, like, I won't let Buddhism spread. I won't let Buddhism spread here. Um, but she's actually tricking him uh, in the process. Um, and this is uh, in part why there are no Buddhist monks allowed at the Issei Shrine, which is Amaterasu's main center of worship. Um, but the, the truth is Amaterasu is an avatar of Dainichi, the guy whose seal they found, of the cosmic Buddha. Amaterasu is a version kind of of, of Dainichi. Uh, and they're both associated with the sun, and there's some other parallels here. Um, and the longer version of the story, Mara is also an avatar of another kami. Um, and we see these kind of parallels coming into effect, right? The name of Japan is shared with Dainichi. Um, the point being, the creation story has been modified to fit a Buddhist worldview. Geographically, now it's off the coast of India. Uh, the knowledge confirmation has changed to fit a new epistemological model. Um, and for me, maybe the most striking thing is that there's this the direct reference to Nihon Shoki. You know, when you're reading commentaries, they they don't say uh, we should interpret the Nihon Shoki this way. They just say the Nihon Shoki says, and then they give you this story that actually isn't in the Nihon Shoki at all. It's something totally different. 
I actually, if I can have like a one minute aside, this is how we arrived at the cover of the book, the cover art, uh, which is, um, you know, I guess the standard practice for books in, in Asian studies for pre-modern Asian studies is to, you know, you find an object or a text or some kind of medium and, and that's the cover art. But I wanted to do a cover art that kind of worked with the argument of the book, the argument being that myths are subject to interpretation. And so I asked a, uh, a New York-based artist named Hayden Davis, his, his info is on the dust jacket if you want to commission something for yourself. Uh, but I asked Hayden Davis to read to read the myths in Kojiki Nihonchoki himself and come up with his own artistic rendition of, of what he thought the myths were about. Uh, and he produced he produced something that, that eventually turned into the cover image. Uh, but if you look closely, you might be able to see the cover image. It, it kind of looks like Amaterasu is the one who's doing the spear dipping. It's gotten a little more abstract than where we started. And when we had the conversation, um, and I mentioned to Hayden that, you know, and, and I was like, you know, it's Amaterasu is not the one on the bridge, right? It's Izanagi and Izanami on the bridge. And he was he was really upset. He was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I've I've totally misunderstood the myth. Uh, and I said, no, actually, you, you haven't misunderstood it at all. In medieval Japan, the way that you read it is the way that everybody understood it. It was normal to think that obviously Amaterasu would be the one on the bridge. Look, she's the most important one, right? Why wouldn't she be the one who actually creates everything? Um, and and so through that process is we we arrived at what ultimately became the, the cover image for the book. Thank you. That that's actually super interesting because I was um I was actually going to ask you about the cover. It looked very <laughs> um abstract and postmodern to me, but um we will make sure to have a thumbnail of this cover um in our description and uh I hope our listeners uh, also check on the link and take a look at this cover. But now that you mentioned the commentaries, um, I want to uh, move on to our next question. So this is these two um, are such uh, important texts in Japan that even scholars in pre-modern or early modern times have also devoted so much time into studying them and uh, what they meant for Japan or Japan's history. And as your book details, these scholars have left behind a lot of commentary about the text different interpretations, explanations, or even um, other uh, renditions of these texts. So what are some of the key, I guess, no, sorry, let me uh, get back a second. When did these interpretations start? And what were some of the key interpretations of these texts in um, Japan's past? Yeah, um, so the interpretations start uh, at the, it depends a little bit on how kind of broad you want to define commentary. You know, I take a really broad uh, approach in the book. So we start, you know, I'm starting looking at 812 uh, as kind of a, a really important date. Uh, this is the beginning of kind of lectures on the Nihon Shoki at, at court. Uh, and we start getting notes. People are at the lectures attending, attending the lectures and they're taking notes on what's going on and, and how the text is being interpreted. Uh, some of those will be collected eventually in the early 14th century, we get probably the first uh, thing that looks like a commentary. Uh, it's called the, the Shaku Nihongi. And, and it is um, a collection of a lot of those earlier Heian notes, along with some new original materials. Um, and uh, there's a couple important commentaries written uh, through the, uh, the one in particular in the 16th century, 
uh, um, most of the commentaries before the six before 1600, before the early modern period, are focused extensively on or or solely on the age of the gods, on the mythological components. Um, it's really in the Tokugawa period that we start to get commentary that looks like commentary that I think fits kind of our our more contemporary idea of what a commentary would look like, where we have the base text and then we have kind of annotations and stuff like that. Um, I think in terms of um, identifying the key interpretations, um, I've talked about the kind of Buddhist informed uh, way to approach it. Um, moving into the early modern period, I think uh, the easiest way to, to split it up is, uh, at least for me, is to think about it in kind of rationalist approaches versus empiricist approaches. Um, the easy example, maybe uh, like a kind of rationalist example, there's a debate that I, I discuss uh, that uh, Hayashi Razan has with uh, a guy named Habian, who has who has a map uh, of a of a spherical world, and um, and Razan is adamant that this is, this is just a lie. He says the world there's no way that the world is round, and Razan knows this because um, Chu Shi, this kind of Song Chinese commentator, has has uh, written about the world differently, and and Razan believes that that's how it is. Um, and and when the subject of human experience comes up, Razan is very dismissive, right? He says, uh, you know, there are these these people who claim to have circled, they sailed around the world, but actually they they were just lost. They didn't know where they were going. Um, it's all it's all it's it's this. It can't be how it is. Versus a kind of empirical treatment, uh, maybe a uh, hundred uh, and some odd years later. Uh, easy example: Motori no Ninaga. He's the first person to write a full commentary on the Kojiki. Um, and he and he says, we know the world is round because people have gone around the world, like it's happened, and we can trust their experiences. Uh, and he also noticed he says, you know, there's a Buddhist interpretation that there's a kind of giant mountain at the at the center of the world. And he says, we also know that that's wrong, because these people who traveled around the world they didn't see a they didn't see a mountain. If there was a big mountain there, they, somebody would have seen it. Uh, so there's this real um, deference to human experience and kind of human sensory information. That occurs kind of midway through the early modern period and in scholarship on on these texts. Um, beyond that, if we start splitting it into groups, you know, it's it's going to get uh, intense. We're going to have um, Confucian, you know, readers. Basically, every flavor of Chinese Confucianism, Song Confucianism, Wang Yangming, Chu Shi, etc., is going to have some kind of output in Japan. Some commentator is going to approach Nihon Shoki and try to interpret it that way. Uh, there's a number of historians. Uh, Arai Hakuseki is probably the one that the most has been written about in, in English. Um, Ban Nobutomo, Yamagata Banto, the Mito School scholars writing Dai Nihonshi. Um, and for a lot of them, the big issue is, is um, euhemerism, which is this, this term meaning, you know, are the gods actually, are myths actually just descriptions of humans, of human, human events? You know, are Izanagi and Izanami, uh, is are them dipping the spear, is that actually them dipping a kind of boat pole as they sailed from Korea to Japan, crossing over, right? Is this a kind of myth that's meant to explain some kind of historical human event? Are the Japanese people the last kind of descendants of the Zhou dynasty? Uh, there there are, are Confucian theorists in, in early modern Japan who are, who are kind of um, working on these things. Um, there are uh, a spinoff group of Confucian scholars also uh, who, who will create a group of uh, a new sect of Shinto called, called Suika, uh, it's not watermelon. Uh, 
and uh, the, the kanji are different. Uh, but uh, the, and the suika are particularly important also because they're they're the ones who are going to write the first uh, more first full commentaries on on Nihon Shoki. Uh, and their treatment is going to include a lot of Confucian ideas and some parallels from Buddhism too. And then when we go back to these empiricists, who usually in our world are, I think, in, are called Kokugaku scholars generally, but it's kind of complicated because the, the truth is they called themselves lots of different things, Wagaku and Kogaku and all kinds of other stuff. Um, but for me, they kind of all come together in that they tended to stretch evidentiary scholarship and philology. Uh, there's a tendency in Western scholarship, I think, especially to associate these scholars with vernacular. Japanese writing, um, but I, I think that it doesn't really hold that. It's not necessarily the case. Uh, and um, for me, the, the definition of these this group of scholars really comes down to, you know, both Noninaga, first commentator of Kojiki, but also the Kawamura, Hidene, and Masune. These are the, the father and son pair. They write the first non-Suika commentary on the Nihon Shoki. Um, both of them write about how much they hate Suika, Suika approaches toward reading and writing. So to some degree, you know, for me, it's, it makes more sense to read Kokugaku as a kind of reaction to Suika epistemology. And in these commentaries, obviously, um, all these um, scholars from different schools, different um, styles of um, knowledge, different uh, even literary scholars, the categorization of these texts, um, Nihonshoki and Kojiki, have ranged from classical literature, mythology, religious texts, origin stories of Japan, and like you mentioned, um, um, history or just um, knowledge sometimes in general. So how did the reader use these texts in Japan in the pre-modern times? And um, do you see any kind of pattern of the categorization for Nihon Shoki and Kojiki change um, over time during specific um, social or political contexts? Yeah, it's uh, another really big question. Uh, so um, I think when it comes to the kind of categories, um, it's hard to pin down in a, in a single sentence in the sense that, you know, these kind of long array studies, you know, ultimately we're going to argue that things changed in response to a variety of cultural, historical, political, epistemological cosmological, theological, linguistic, et cetera, factors. Um, but at the same time, like the factors themselves are in flux. The factors, the importance, relative importance of the factors is itself changing. Um, so maybe if I can kind of um, spin off of the, the question a little bit, uh, you know, when we're talking about the categories, uh, talking about genres of materials, you know, what's hard is probably for, for most of pre-modern Japan, like the genres that we think of them didn't exist. They didn't exist in the same fashion. So um, one thing that is just, you know, it seems like this huge range of materials to us, um, but I don't know that it necessarily seemed that way to people at the time. Um, I think for the pre-modern, early modern readers, it, it really comes down to the fact that that Nihon Shoki and later Kojiki, these two texts are, are canon, they're canonical texts about the origins of Japan. So if you had anything to say in, in any arena, you know, theological, political, poetic, et cetera, it was kind of desirable to use these contents because it, it has the power to elevate anything that you write to the level of canon. You know, so it, if I'm writing a commentary on the tale of Genji, uh, if we look at the earliest commentaries on the tale of Genji, they cite the Nihon Shoki. Uh, they don't really have Genji and the Nihon Shoki don't have anything to do with each other. But 
before Genji itself had been canonized, when these commentaries cite Nihon Shoki, it, it uh, kind of spreads the cano canonicity around, right? It raises the level of Genji, it raises the level of the commentary up to the level that Nihon Shoki is already, is already at. Um, I mean, at some level, I think there's a kind of related trend in contemporary writing about Japan, uh, especially journalistic writing. And there's um, a New York article, New York article that I refer to in the, uh, I think in the conclusion, um, but I think it's actually kind of a paradigm for writing about Japan. I mean, I, we could easily find it a number of recent New York Times and Washington Post articles that do the same thing, where they just say, you know, Japan has been doing X for the entirety of its history, and then there'll be some quote from the Kojiki. And, and it's extremely common in contemporary writing, right? Japan has been doing X for a long time because the Kojiki says blah, blah, blah. And, and usually if we pay attention to these quotes, you know, we can see that for one, they're, they're almost always being taken out of context. Uh, and for two, they're making these really, uh, they're making assumptions about the modern Japanese nation state, or really they're making assumptions about the kind of post-war racially homogenous Japanese nation state. There's uh, a point being, you know, the way that, that the texts are, are used in Japan and, and even outside of Japan, um, because of their canonical status, that usage is still happening. Um, the factors and the assumptions have changed but that selective usage is still happening. Um, and if I can add one last thing on this, on this take too, you know, it's, it's pretty normal for canonical texts to um, essentially demand exegesis. Uh, John um, Henderson has a, has a great quote that canons are always kind of simple and complex. Um, they're simple in the sense that they, they present the truth of the world in this kind of straightforward fashion, but they're complex in the sense that every canon has to have an exegete. Every canon has to have somebody who comes along and explains what it says. Um, and this is this is something that goes for the Bible, it goes for the Quran, for the Torah, for Confucius, uh, for Nihon Shoki. I mean, we see it everywhere that we have canonical texts. Um, where Kojiki and Nihon Shoki really shine, where we really get a kind of major distinction with comparing with these other canonical traditions, um, is in this linguistic arena. Um, you know, the Quran is in the language of God, right? Um, there's a moment when the Catholic Church says that the 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 Bible, the Latin Bible, is the the language, the official language of the Bible. Uh, you know, Latter Day Saints, Mormons in the United States, they believe that the King James Version is the canonical, like the English, that is the official Bible. That's the canonical Bible, not the Hebrew, not the Greek, the Victorian English. So, um, but we we don't really get this in Kojiki Nihon Shoki. Actually, we have like a big problem because neither of these is written in vernacular Japanese. There are people who would argue that Kojiki is written in vernacular Japanese, and we can't really sort that out, I think, at this moment. Um, but neither of them are written directly in vernacular Japanese. This means that whoever's writing the commentary can make up whatever, I mean, they could make up whatever they want. I mean, they have a lot more space to operate in, uh, in terms of determining how they want to create meaning in their commentary. Um, this uh, idea that there's a kind of canon behind the canon, behind the text, a vernacular authentic original behind the Chinese characters, you know, really comes out in the Japanese case, maybe in a way that it doesn't in, in some other canonical traditions. Now that um, we're talking about canonization of the, the, the texts themselves and the commentaries, um, I think another important issue your book raised um, was uh, about how we should treat the commentary. And... Um, the the study of the commentary and annotations has been a very important part in um, understanding these two texts. 
Um, can you elaborate more on the point of how you see commenters and annotated can be used in studying um, pre-modern literature and history in the sense of, um, well, some of these commenters of Kojiki, for instance, they the commenter themselves have been used as either um, forms of literature, uh, literary text, or historical records. Where do you see the boundary, or should there be a boundary? Or in this book, how do you use um, these commentary and annotation of um, Kojiki and Nihonshoki? Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's a great question. We might even talk about modern literature too. And because, yeah, that, I think the part of the issue is, I can't, I don't have a great answer because they, I end the book basically saying that I, I'm not sure that there is a boundary. Uh, or maybe we should be asking this question of what it is, is does it really make sense to have a boundary? Um, I mean, in terms of placing commentary, connecting commentary with the uh, study of literature and history, you know, maybe it makes sense to break it into two two pieces, like a historical piece and a methodological piece. On the historical side, um, one thing I hope that kind of comes through in the book is how important commentary, even really old commentary, is for research. Um, obviously, from an intellectual history perspective, it's it's invaluable. It's this kind of window into the way people um, people understood the world, uh, and it's it's pretty common before 1900 for people to write their political opinion or religious opinion or whatever else through a commentary. The commentary is this kind of vehicle, especially I think in East Asia, it has this function of a kind of essay or, or a treatise. Um, I think for the history of literature, it also, um, through this process, you can kind of see how important it is to engage with authentic materials. Now there's a point I think in the book, I, I make an argument on how to approach a textual issue in an early modern commentary based on how the material is presented in the in the hampon, in the original printed edition of the book. And um, this is uh, something that gets elided when you're reading the modern printed edition of the book, um, which which is to say, you know, it's 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 important. Um, it's important to kind of try to look at the things that the people that you're reading and studying were, were looking at themselves. Um, and then segueing into the other half, into the methodolo methodological element. I think one thing that happens when you're when you're reading all of this commentary is you kind of become hyper aware that that it's all commentary. I mean, you, you say that you want to go read Genji or whatever, and you get the modern, you know, Shogakukan or the modern Iwanami edition of Genji. Uh, but but in truth, that's that's a commentary. It's it's not the Genbun. It's not it's not the base text. Um, Karen Karen Emmerich in her book on um, literary translation, she has this challenge that she gives to her readers and. And maybe it, maybe it's a good challenge for your for your listeners, uh, which is to go to their bookshelf and and try to find a book that actually qualifies as original. And uh, you know, obviously anything in translation is out. Um, Will Will Hedberg at your your own university is has kind of uh, addressed this with Chinese books in Japan. Um, and and I think Emmerich really uh, stresses that there's all these other people involved, right? Types editors and editors and people who are doing the layout and people who are deciding which version of the author's draft to use. Uh, having just published a book myself, I have also a list, this kind of newfound appreciation for how many hands are involved in, in bringing it to production. Um, and so when it comes to commentary, I guess I, I kind of feel like uh, we should probably categorize this commentary whether this is for Nihon Shoki or whether this is for Nasume Soseki, 
know, what we're saying is the originalist is actually a product with a lot of people involved. It, it kind of is a commentary. Uh, or maybe another way to put it is that the par paratext is, is a kind of commentary. Maybe that's the modernist way to put it. I don't know. Um, circling back to how you how you phrased it in your original question, yeah, I I I don't know if there I don't know if it makes sense to to have a boundary. Um, I think sometimes it might be more productive to think to think about the question without assuming that there is there is such a thing as the original text, or there necessarily has to be a boundary. Thank you, thank you very much for saying that. I have been um, asked that question a lot myself uh, lately, so um, it was um, I completely agree. And uh, thank you so much for your time, um, for joining us on the channel today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. This has been this has been a great chat. Thank you. And uh, there was obviously a lot that we couldn't have covered uh, in the interview. So for our listeners who are interested in myth or Japanese literature and any related topics, make sure to check out this new book, Meanings of Antiquity, Myth Interpretation in Pre-Modern Japan by Dr. Matthew Fell. It's currently available as hardcover. This is Jenny Lee from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode and Happy New Year.